Hi, I'm Linus, and welcome back to the Inter-Intellect Hostcast. In this episode, I talked to poet and writer Grace Bailucky about her upcoming in-person salon in New York City, about holiday traditions, and about her work as a poet. Please check out the links in the description below to learn more about the event. All right. Um, hey, Grace. Uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Hi, Linus. Happy to be here. Great. So um, you're going to be hosting a very exciting New York City IRL salon gathering on December 21st, just in time for the holidays. And it is indeed a holiday themed uh, event. So just wanted to start out with uh, a more personal question, perhaps, um, in terms of what do the holidays mean to you? Um, and why did you want to host a salon that's really centered around the holidays? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I think as I've gotten older, the holidays, their meaning has evolved for me. And I was never raised in a very religious or spiritual family. So it's been really freeing to kind of make my own traditions and rituals around the holidays, especially as I grow older. Um, although when I was young, my mother was always very, very adamant about putting up as many Christmas lights as possible. Uh, so I do think that for me, the holidays also has to do with that transition into the darkest, the sol winter solstice, obviously the darkest day of the year and kind of hunkering down and how we gather together and prepare ourselves for this season. Um, so I think about it perhaps more as that change of seasons than in the religious sense. And I would also say that that's kind of what inspired me to have this gathering in person in New York City and just kind of come and be cozy together. Um, and I also thought that just by sharing different holiday traditions and looking at how people approach it across the globe, we could start to appreciate it in a new way and maybe even start to think of new ways to celebrate that we haven't before. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. Um, I think we'll, we'll get to the kind of the wintry vibes in a little <laughs> bit. Um, but I love what you said about in terms of kind of finding your way with you know, new traditions, having grown up in uh, maybe a less traditional household. Um, kind of what's been your experience, you know, sharing the holidays with other people as you've grown up, as you've you know met new people kind of along your life in terms of what I think some people feel like is something quite universal about the holidays, but also obviously everyone has different traditions and practices. And so how would you describe kind of your dynamic between the particular particularity of the holidays versus kind of the universal nature of it? Yeah, I think for me, it's always about finding a balance of that universality, which also has such a comforting familiarity and then adapting to that particular year or where I am. For example, I lived in Paris for four years in my late 20s. And so you kind of throw all the family Christmas traditions out the window when you're abroad in Europe. Um, and I love cooking. So for me, it would be like, you know, no matter where I am, we're still gonna get together, make a meal at home with friends. Um, and that could be totally different food, you know, totally different approach to the meal. Yet the idea is that we're still in the kitchen together and we're gonna still sit and appreciate the food in each other's company at the end of it. Um, 
I would also just say that like being less and less attached to the more tangible aspects of it, gifts, even tied to it happening on a specific day and just saying, okay, the spirit of this will be here whenever we do celebrate it. Because also in that time period, I would, you know, have Christmas with my fam, Christmas in quotation marks with my family in February or, you know, some other random day that I just happened to see them and we happened to all be together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I'd love to kind of double click into, you know, just the spirit of the holidays you know, in terms of um, the kind of the winter solstice as a bit of a almost like a geological uh, thing that actually gives the, the holidays some meaning. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you know, what that meaning, that spirit actually is, if you can put it into words and you know, how you, you would describe it to an alien. <laughs> hmm. Well, for me, the solstice is really about not getting lost in the darkness, yet accepting the fact, and I just, I mean darkness in the very literal sense that it's the day with the shortest daylight hours. It's not, and obviously winter can also bring up, it can be a difficult time for period just for people just because of that. Um, people suffer from seasonal affective disorder. It can be hard to spend time outside. Sometimes you just don't feel like leaving your home because of the weather, making it more difficult to connect with people. So for me, the solstice is accepting that we're entering this period that may be challenging, may just, just be cold and dark, and then saying, okay, with the limitations that come with this, how can we still find community find a way to be at ease and at peace with ourselves. And also even, I would say, start to celebrate the fact that we have these months that are naturally a little bit more introspective, a little bit quieter, that don't have that expansive go, go, go energy of the summer. Um, because I do believe that we can find ways to live in harmony with the earth, even in the cycles of the seasons, even if we're not strictly agrarian society anymore yeah that makes a lot of sense um one thing that i've i've figured is you know because because i grew up in the bay area i grew up in california mm -hmm. and then spent the past eight years on the east coast um and oftentimes that was the first time i would feel kind of the kind of the traditional christmas spirit in terms of it. i don't think it still ever snowed on christmas i think it's been a while and might be um increasingly rare um mm -hmm. nowadays um but I, I don't know if you've experienced christmas um and and just you know, the, the holiday season in different types of weather and climates and how that would therefore actually make it a very different experience uh how important do you feel like um the yeah, physical conditions I, I have definitely felt that i I uh, went to college in Los Angeles. And so it was for me coming from 18 years of the four seasons, very disorienting, especially in the winter months to still have those sunny days, those warm, sunny days. And I think it made me also just feel uh, like I, I had lost a sense of the passage of time. And I do think that we need holidays and we need rituals, even if we're in a different climate that help ground us and tie us to the fact that the seasons are changing or we're starting a new calendar year or that kind of just mark other shifts 
otherwise um, it's very easy to feel ungrounded and kind of adrift. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now let's get to the fun part, which is about around art and the holidays. So you're a, a writer and a poet. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to first of all ask, do you have any favorite holiday related pieces of writing, whether it's poetry, um, plays, uh, novels, anything mm -hmm. that comes comes to mind as like exemplars? Yeah, I mean, this is the most classic example, so I'm a little bit embarrassed by it. I would just say I think Dickens' The Christmas Carol is such a gem um, for the, the morals it instills and the tale it tells without feeling overly moralistic. And it's also quite secular. There's very, you know, they're celebrating Christmas, yet there are these three ghosts that come. You know, it's in a time, you know, written in the 1800s when the church still had a large influence over life in the United Kingdom, he comes out and he's talking about the ghost of Christmas present, past and future. Um, and so I do think that that's one that will always, I also, one of my holiday traditions when I was younger was not reading it, but at least watching it. Um, and so I do feel like that one will always be close to my heart because it, it's pretty quirky. I mean, obviously, Dickens is like a very iconic writer, part of the canon. Yeah, at the same time, I have to give him credit for being quite imaginative with that one. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I think we also can't talk about art and Christmas without mentioning Christmas music. Um, mm -hmm. I think that when I think about the holidays, it's always right after Thanksgiving. This is how American centric we are on this podcast. Um, but um, Right after Thanksgiving, it's all just Christmas music until the New Year's. Um, and like, what does Christmas music mean to you, if anything? And like, how do you feel like that's uh, a part of the tradition versus just you know a very kind of jingoistic way of marking the year? Yeah, I think that there, like so many things on life, there's the spectrum of Christmas music um, through, which I think is a lovely tradition of singing carols, be it in church or just gathering around a piano, which doesn't happen that often. But there is something about singing as a group and coming together in communion that I do think is really powerful and lovely. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you're in any given store and there's some very, in my opinion, insipid Christmas music playing and you, I wish that it would just turn off or, you know, I'm just wondering how soon I can get out of there. So I think that, you know, some people will always have certain associations with certain songs and I find that for myself it's just a matter of finding maybe a version of that song that really resonates with you or this idea that just because the, the music is being reinterpreted, can it still kind of have that same emotional resonance? And at times I feel like that resonance is lost um, when it's used in the more commercial and commercialized way. Yeah, no, that makes a, makes a ton of sense. Um, I personally, yeah, 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 I'm a terrible singer, so never had again, the Christmas Carol kind of experience as a participant. But I think, you no, know, I can definitely see how it's uh, a very rich uh, and kind of connective 
experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say the great thing about carols is if you're in a group, it doesn't matter if you're a bad singer. I'm also an awful singer. So it's hopefully if there's enough people, it's less about the way you sound and it's more about the act of doing it. Um, I was going to ask, though, am, am I the only person that hates Christmas music, like the more modern sense? <laughs> Gosh, I'm sure you're not the only one. Um, I think I'm baseline neutral, but given how much it gets blasted around, it's the, the diminishing returns makes it quickly a net negative experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably where I stand. Um, before we, um, yeah, move totally off of kind of the salons that you're, you're hosting, um, because I do want to spend be able to spend a little bit of time learning about your work as a writer. Um, I mean, this particular event, uh, on the, the 21st of December is just one of a series of events that you're doing in New York city. Um, um, the series called, uh, I think it's called expansive conversations. Um, mm -hmm. and I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit more about, um, kind of your inspiration and, uh, motivation for hosting this, um, series more broadly and kind of what you're trying to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the title is a little bit grandiose. So I think the first goal is li living up to that, uh, I would also say that, you know, coming out of the pandemic in the last couple of years, for me, gathering in person has become increasingly important, um, even if so many of us are still working online and, you know, connecting via the internet. I do see that there is just a different atmosphere and a different sense of creativity and inspiration that comes from a room full of people. Um, so I'm really going to be leaning into that idea with this New York in person series and bringing in different readings, poems, texts, having us look at them together, start to share our interpretations, ideas about them, and then also see if the, that conversation can spark new ideas, be it something we're working on at work, be it in a relationship, in a friendship, be it just an idea for a creative project. Um, I often feel like my best ideas come not when I'm at my desk, but when I've left my desk and just said, I can't anymore and met a friend for lunch and we're going, we're walking around afterwards. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, that's the solution to the problem. Um, so I don't know if we'll be solving very specific problems. <laughs> uh, and also to me that I, I'm hopeful that some ideas will come out of these conversations. And beyond that, I would also just say creating a sense of community with inter, the inter-intellect members, which we already have and is great. And also just being able to see people in person Maybe, you know, you're walking out together and you end up taking the subway home because you're going in the same direction. Just little interaction interactions like that that we might not previously have. Um, so I'm really excited that this will now be happening once a month. And I'm hoping that we start to build, you know, a community of regulars as well as people like yourself who might just be in New York City and the dates line up and you're able to pop by too. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the the events in New York City. You know, I'm super happy that you know, you're taking the helm and, and making 
these events very regular. Uh, so mm -hmm. excited to um, see the events even beyond this one and would hope love to stop by if I'm ever in town. And the, the only thing I would add is I think we're so lucky to have uh, this space up on 79th Street at the Montessori School. And it's a it's a beautiful space, even just being in that in that library surrounded by by books, I think is inspiring in among itself. So this idea too, that sometimes we do have to leave the comfort of our homes and kind of go somewhere else to get our minds thinking in different ways. Yes, it's it's definitely a really great space. Um, we'd love to uh, move on to just kind of your work. Um, yeah, now outside of interintellect, now as as a poet, as a writer, as a meditation coach, um, one uh, you know more selfish question uh, from from me as someone who's done my share of creative writing in a previous life. Um, I tried to write poetry, um, but it was never something natural. Um, I could write some. Uh, but I don't never felt like I got the genre. Um, mm -hmm. What does poetry mean to you, and why is that uh, a medium that kind of you've kind of taken to and and love? Mm -hmm. I think the difficult thing about poetry, and the thing that draws me to <laughs> perhaps for this difficulty, is so often it's a practice of expressing in words what has otherwise felt inexpressible. So be that an emotion, be that just capturing a fleeting idea or something more abstract and starting to put that into words that, you know, even if the reader doesn't understand on the most literal sense, it's still resonating with them. Um, and I would say that traditionally, you know, I studied writing and I wrote a lot of fiction and I felt the same way that I, I would never be a poet, just felt entirely inaccessible. And then my last year at school, I took a class with Claudia Rankin, who's now a, a very well-known poet um, in experimental poetry. And they had this experimental, the Blackshook Collective, this experimental poetry collective came and they performed for us. And it was unlike anything I had ever seen. You know, they were typing up poems on stage and deleting them. And one of them said at one point in one of the workshops that they never write poetry at the desk. Like <laughs> they couldn't imagine sitting down and writing a poem. And that really changed my poetic practice because I started just thinking of ideas and phrases in my head when I was cycling through New York City, when I was walking around and kind of starting to build those phrases. And so I think for me, I've really let go of the idea that, oh, I'm going to sit down and write a poem. And I'm more just trying to piece together other thoughts or something that comes up out of my subconscious. And I would also say that my meditation practice and, you know, the, the practice of being present in the moment has really helped my poetry because I find that I can kind of tune into that place much easier than I could when I was younger. And I've also taken a lot of the pressure off myself and moved away from the idea that, okay, I'm going to sit down at the desk and write a poem that I will even feel good about, you know, <laughs> that would even be passable or mediocre. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I think that's a really great segue actually into uh, an article that you wrote called, um, I have it up here, uh, What It Takes to Be a TikTok Poet, which was published in The Millions. Um, and I think your point in terms of um, 
poems as something that's not you know, something that you necessarily write down at a desk and that you craft and sculpt, but it actually can be something very spontaneous, instantaneous even. Um, like, is that kind of what you meant by like a TikTok poet in terms of kind of the different modes of creation and presentation and distribution? Um, maybe first of all, just you know, say a little bit about what the what the article was. Yeah, it was a little bit about that, and it was less about the distribution of the medium, I think, and more about the approach to craft. So I do think, and poets talk about this, Mary Oliver, um, you know, one of the most renowned poets of the past century, in my opinion, um, would say sometimes you do just have a poem that you almost channel and it comes through and you write it down and it's complete. That's that she wrote thousands of poems in her, her lifetime and she said, okay, maybe that's that happened three or four times. So for me, it is about, you know, tapping into the subconscious and finding these ideas. And then there's also a revision process. Right now I'm putting together a poetry chapbook and I'm working with another poet, we're editing each other's work. And often if I find myself stuck at a roadblock, I just send it to her, you know, I just admit defeat and say, I can't figure this part out. And it's not even like she's choosing the right word for me. She'll just say something or ask a question that helps me get unblocked. Um, so in the essay, because I, you know, decided these many young women are selling self-published poetry collections on TikTok and have thousands, if not millions of followers, you know, just let, let's see what's going on over there. And in, in my experience on the platform, it felt like a lot of poets were just creating work and then immediately putting it out there. And there wasn't much of a revision process. And there wasn't that process of necessarily sitting with the work and saying, what is this really about? What am I really trying to convey here? And I think that you can have the essence of that at the beginning in a, a draft one of a piece. And that if you get to draft three and four and five, then the piece can be even more powerful. So um, I was kind of grappling with the idea of, okay, you know, who is defining craft in our, in the literary world these days? And, you know, who is still wanting to put in that work versus just having a platform and being able to share the work at, at any place, wh wh wherever it is on that revision process. The other thing I would add is I personally love language and you know I'm, I'm fluent in French and there's also just all these old words that we're losing. <laughs> And I think that there is such a beautiful variety of different language and different ways of saying things. And poets sometimes talk about verbing a noun, where you take a noun and turn it into a verb. Um, and one of the things that I struggle with on TikTok is just frankly, sometimes being bored by the work because even if the idea is interesting, I it's not being expressed in a new way or it's not kind of I love poems where I have to stop and look up a word, <laughs> you know, that there's a little vocab lesson in them. And it's not like it even feels like, oh, the poet is deliberately trying to be very intellectual. It's a word that fits into the context of the poem that maybe I haven't heard before or I haven't heard in a long time or I need to look it up again just to understand that meaning in a new way. Yeah, I think there's a really good point. Um, maybe... A follow-up to that would be, if a 
kind of a young poet came up to you maybe she's 15 16 or 18 and and wants advice about how to be a great poet um is there anything that you feel you could universally say uh would be uh that you would you know pass on uh, as advice I love this question because I do a lot of community-based writing workshops and I actually work with older adults who are sometimes also young poets because they've been waiting to get to this point in their life when they have free time and can finally start working writing poetry so I think the a young poet you can be a young poet at almost any stage in your life Um, for me in those instances I think the most important lesson I can impart is to keep writing and to find the joy in that practice. Um, Because like anything, you get better through not rote repetition, but just developing a way of doing it yourself that resonates with you, that makes you feel excited and not like you're just slogging through the uphill battle of creation. Um, And then I'd say when, when one gets to a point where they feel comfortable starting to share your work with others, Because what's so tricky about writing is, and I don't know if you experienced this when you were writing, is it all makes perfect sense in our heads. (laughs) And then someone else reads it and all of a sudden they're asking questions and they're stumbling over this phrase that you thought was just so fluidly perfect. And so um, that has been, it can be a very humbling experience and it's just been so important to my own writing to have a community of friends who are writers and editors and people who I know will look at my work with thought and care and give me feedback on it. Yeah, I think that community and, and feedback component is, is so important. Um, how, how have you gone about, you know, finding your people, finding that community of writers who, you know, people yet you can just, send poems and like rough drafts to um like yeah like how have you found your your tribe in terms of that writing support Mm. well I was lucky because I did a writing program as a part of my undergrad studies so even coming out of that I had some writer friends um and then when I was living in Paris, there was a very strong expat writing community there as well, a couple writing groups and writing workshops. Um, I think that organizations like Interintellect are also pretty great for this. And I, you know, when I teach writing classes, I often tell my students, you are your own best resource because when this class ends, you can still be in touch with each other. So I'll be starting a poetry series at Interintellect as well in January. And My hope with that is even if it's not a formal writing workshop, if you meet somebody in the series and you feel like you have the same taste in poetry and their feedback, what they're saying about the poems is resonating with you, you know, that could be a potential person to start sharing your work with. Um, I would also say that, you know, I've been writing for many years now. And so I I was a columnist and I became friends with the other columnists and just, you never really know where, where people will pop up from, but keeping that your mind open and keeping the idea that you don't have to write alone. And I think we have this stereotype of the solitary anguished writer kind of hunched over their desk late at night, which is certainly the case for many people. And I also like to offer, you know, the corollary to that, which would be, 
you know, someone is in a, in a room of others and sharing their work and getting feedback or even just meeting a friend for coffee and saying, hey, I'm having a hard time figuring this out and getting help from them. Yeah, definitely no shortage of, of spaces and, and groups. Um, Interintellect you know, does have um, a pretty wide variety of writing-related events. So I'm going to make sure to li uh, link to some of those you know, in the show description as well. So definitely check those out. Um, as we're coming up on time, I uh, just wanted to also just open up the floor in terms of um, as you know, people gather you know, for the holidays and and at, at your event on December twentieth, twenty first. Kind of, what do you want people to to bring uh, to this gathering? Um, mm, I hope the first thing I hope anyone brings to a gathering is an open mind, and um, maybe an open heart as well, and just the idea that. You know, we're here to share that space with each other and also to start to learn about each other's perspectives. And I'm sure that everyone has their own holiday baggage, as we so often do. And I'm sure people also have their own holiday traditions. So the idea that we can start to start to share those experiences and understand them um, rather than maybe projecting what we believe you know, should be happening around this time of year onto other people. Great. Um, so once again, um, please join Grace Bialecki, um at the holiday gathering in New York City on December 21st. I uh, hope to uh, have lots of people there uh, to celebrate and share. Um, Grace, it's been a pleasure having this conversation and having you on this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Linus.